Well, it is a great pleasure to be with you again and to, to bring to you um, God's Word. It'd be great if uh, you could open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Um, I think that's on page 789, at least in these Bibles it is. Um, I don't know if uh, you've given any serious thought to your death lately. It seems a pretty morbid way to start a talk, I take it. Um, we don't tend to talk about death uh, all that much, do we? Um, I'm not sure if uh, it would be a very popular topic of conversation with your particular friends or not. I'm not sure. When was the last time you, over lunch or dinner, uh, asked them, so have you thought much about the fact that you're going to die one day and what will happen? Um, why not give it a go sometime, see how it goes down with your friends and uh, see how they react. The Bible actually tells us in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says these things, uh, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume, and the day you die, better than the day you are born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, Everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Hmm. Party, funerals. Not which I'd prefer, but think you're wise. Here's a good verse for you. The couple of verses down, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Where does that put you? Well, the Bible is not shy in reminding us again and again that death is 100% statistic. Rich, poor, great or small, young or old, none of us can escape it. Death is our future. But the Bible is not saying that death is a good thing. Um, don't get the wrong idea by what it's trying to teach here. Quite the opposite, really. It's a frustrating and ugly part of our broken world. It's ugly for obvious reasons, as we're going to uh, see a bit later on. It's frustrating because death can make a mockery of our hopes and dreams uh, that we might have. And certainly it's a break to the good relationships that we enjoy. It ends so many of the good things that we pursue in life. It almost mocks us as we seek to attempt these things. And the tragedy of life is that all too soon, death will come knocking us down, each and every single one of us. And we ought to live our life in the light of that fact. That is what the Bible seeks to remind us. Not in a YOLO kind of way, you know, you only live once kind of way, but in a consider God kind of way. And today, what I want to do is look at two stories in the life of Jesus that are really one story as they're sandwiched together uh, where Jesus confronts uh, the, the dread and the, the hopelessness and the helplessness that death brings with it. So let's turn to God in prayer and then I'm going to read it and then uh, we'll speak on it. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that you confront us with the harsh realities of life but also provide us with great hope in the face of those realities. Please help us to pay attention today as your word is read and help us to turn to you, put our trust in the Lord Jesus. 
And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, let's read from uh, Luke chapter 8. Um, I'd love it if someone else could come and read it. Um, anyone willing to come down the front and read it? Volunteer? That'd be great. So we're looking at Luke chapter 8. Uh, it's the end of the chapter. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's the NLT, so it doesn't really matter if you've got the NLT. I don't. 8, 4, what did you say? From there. 40. It says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they'd been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. And Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realised that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees before him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. When Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith and she'll be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping, she isn't dead, she's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up. And at that moment her life returned and immediately she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, uh, in this part of uh, Luke's biography of Jesus, uh, which we're um, picking up there in chapter 8, um, Luke has uh, shown some incredible power that Jesus has. So if you keep your um, uh, Bible open to Luke chapter 8, and you can just see some of the stories uh, that go before it, um, and you'll see there that uh, he demonstrates power over the natural world and the supernatural world of evil spirits, that threaten us with death. That's the kind of gist as we go through this story, uh, chapter 8. In verse 24, Jesus, uh, Jesus' power over nature is seen in the calming of the, the raging storm. His disciples were afraid. They're about to drown uh, because the boat was being swamped by all these waves pounding it. Uh, and uh, they come to Jesus and they ask him, you know, don't you care? We're about to drown. And uh, Jesus... Uh, rebukes the wind and the wave and the, the storm stops. 
and they're saved. A bit later on, Jesus shows his power over the supernatural world uh, when he's confronted by an army of evil spirits. Uh, at least that's the idea behind the name Legion. They're a huge army of evil on the march in verse 30. The, the demons are wreaking havoc in that particular town and in particular they're destroying one man's life. He is living, we're told, among the tombs. He's like the living dead, no better than a zombie, away from everybody, away from life, and no one is able to kind of subdue him. But this army of demons, we're told, don't even put up a fight when it comes to Jesus, when Jesus confronts them. I mean, that's what we're expecting, because they're an army, and they're coming out to, to see Jesus. And what happens? They immediately surrender and cower before Jesus. Jesus kind of blows them away. And he frees the man who no one could free and no one could control. And uh, he uh, lets him go back to his home and live again. He is no longer a zombie among the tombs. And Jesus is taking on death in its many kind of manifestations. In fact, Jesus is so powerful as he does this that it's frightening. People are regularly said to be afraid of him when, he see, when they see the awesome power at work in his life. Uh, the disciples, after witnessing Jesus calming the storm uh, that was really scaring the death out of them, uh, are even more scared by Jesus who calms the storm. Uh, it says there the disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they asked each other, when, who, when he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples are terrified and amazed by Jesus, as we all would be if someone with that kind of power uh, faced us and we saw it. Because it is freaky. We're used to seeing destructive power. We're not used to seeing power like that. That's an unbelievable kind of power that we've never laid eyes upon, at least not in my experience we haven't. Now, the townsfolk... After witnessing Jesus subdue the demon, uh, who, uh, the, the demon-possessed man, uh, who had terrorised their neighbourhood, it says there in verse 37, asked Jesus to leave their neighbourhood. Why? Because a great wave of fear, it says, swept over them. They were overwhelmed with fear. It's the regular occurrence of people when they see the power of Jesus, particularly over death. And the Bible would tell us that it is actually a right thing for us to fear Jesus. Do you fear Jesus? Most people don't fear Jesus. And we don't because we've got a, a distorted picture of who Jesus really is. Uh, one of the most common images uh, I had of Jesus growing up is of, of him uh, cuddling a lamb while there were little children playing all around him. It was a beautiful, sweet uh, picture of Jesus on a, a pasture meadow. Uh, it was on the front of my picture Bible. Um, and it's a nice picture, nothing wrong with it, except if it's our only picture of Jesus and we play down his power because of it. If we, think, uh, if we don't tend to think of Jesus as powerful, well, then, and, and that's the kind of picture that we have of him, then, well, he's nothing better than a firecracker kind of power going off in our hands. You know, we can control him kind of thing. 
But the Bible gives us a very different picture of Jesus altogether and particularly of the power that he has. Uh, I guess if the, if the Bible were to measure the kind of the distance between how powerful we are compared to how powerful Jesus is, then the distance would be infinite. I mean, we're talking heaps bigger than uh, Mike Tyson or John Cena or Triple H. I'm not even sure who that is, but I, you know, that someone told me about it. Um, uh, or um, anyone powerful in your experience. Um, in fact, the Bible would tell us we should sooner take on a nuclear bomb than seek to take on Jesus in his power. But we should note, though, that there is a right uh, way to fear Jesus and a wrong way to fear Jesus. And we kind of see a few examples of the wrong way to see Jesus in the text. The wrong way to fear Jesus is to run away from him, to push him away, to ask him to leave, to avoid, avoid him. That's what the townsfolk people end up doing. The right way to fear Jesus, well, it's to go to him, to humble ourselves before him and to trust him. Why would we go to Jesus? Because what makes Jesus awesome is not just his power, but his good character. You see, Hitler had power, didn't he? Stalin had power. Kim Jong-un in North Korea has power. Power in the hands of evil, well, that is just destructive. It's terrifying. But power in the hands of good, well, that is wonderful. It can achieve a lot and do a lot of good things. It's the power and the goodness of Jesus together that attracts us to him and enables us to trust him and joyfully and willingly follow him. Now, as we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, um, Jesus is returning by boat uh, to Galilee and he finds himself a very popular fi figure. Great crowds and uh, lots and lots of people are, are gathering and greeting him. Um, they're gathering around him. And a man called Jairus comes along and begs Jesus to come and heal his sick uh, daughter. And Luke tells us that this is Jairus' only daughter. She's only 12 years old, we're told. And there is something about sick, dying young children that really tugs at our heartstrings, isn't there? You really feel for Jairus here in this story as he comes before Jesus. Um, I, had to, I had to go visit a... Um, a young girl from my church in hospital. She had uh, leukaemia and we weren't sure if she was going to make it at, at that point. And that was heartbreaking enough. But when I went into the ward, it was full of children with cancer. And the regular story was that every day or two, one would disappear. Now, that was tragic. So it's really easy to appreciate Jairus's desperation for his dying daughter here as he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus and begs. I mean, this guy is a leader in the local synagogue. He would have been really highly regarded and respected by this very crowd that he was now groveling before Jesus at. But he has no trouble, does he, in humbling himself, humiliating himself before Jesus because desperate times called for desperate measures. And Jairus was hopeless and helpless. And Jesus is his only hope and his only help. And he asked Jesus to go to his house to heal his daughter. And so Jesus goes with him. And the crowd 
follows. No doubt they want to see an amazing miracle take place. And on the way, we meet this sick woman who comes from the other end of the spectrum of Jewish society. And we're told that she has a blood flow problem for 12 years. Now, according to the law, if you turn to Leviticus 15, she was declared unclean because it was an uncontrollable blood flow problem. And that meant that anything and anyone she touched became unclean. And that meant that basically she was not welcome anywhere. She was ostracised from the community who would not want to be unclean. She wasn't allowed to go to the temple, obviously because no unclean thing was allowed there. And uh, so she was excluded not only from the community, but from the very presence of God. She would have been an outcast, pushed out and not allowed to go anywhere. And she was like this, we're told, for 12 years. What is a short time of living for Jairus' daughter turns out to be a lifetime of misery for this woman. It's years of humiliation, of pain, of rejection and despair for this woman. And all of her efforts, we're told, to get help had failed so far and she was at breaking point because she'd wasted all her money. All of it on doctors. And the implication now is that she is all alone no one is going into bat for her, unlike Jairus' daughter who, whose father was willing to go to Jesus for her. She's got no one. She's on her own. The sickness really has robbed this woman of her money, of her relationships. It's robbed her of her dignity and it's even robbed her of her identity as part of the people of God. It's basically ruined her life. She was hopeless, helpless, poor and alone and you really can't get much lower and because of all this she feels unworthy to come to Jesus directly and so she sneaks up behind him I think if the people knew they wouldn't have allowed her to because everyone she basically had to touch and push past in order to get to there had become unclean without them even knowing So she's really hoping that she goes unnoticed so that she can achieve her mission. And she just manages, we're told, to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, just the edge, and instantly healed. Mission accomplished. Except Jesus notices. It's just the edge of the cloak, we're told, just the fringe. Um, no grab, no pressing, no pulling, I played a lot of tip footy, and there's always tip footy, and there's always disputes, isn't there? When the, the, just the, the the shirt is touched, because well, you didn't touch me. Yes, I did. I touched your shirt. Well, I didn't feel it, and that's the ongoing story in tip footy. Um, but here is Jesus, and he feels it—not feels the touch, we're told—but he feels the power uh, uh, leave him. Um, in this large crowd where everyone's bumping. Uh, up against Jesus, pressing in on him, we're told in verse 45, Peter is amazed that Jesus can ask who touched him. Um, and in the gospel stories, he really, um, uh, Peter seems to be a big fan of stating the bleeding obvious, so he steps up again and tells Jesus, what do you mean? Basically, everyone's touching you. You, you you're crazy, Jesus. 
Um, but Jesus explains he felt the power going out from him. And so now this woman, who really wanted to be unnoticed, wants to remain anonymous, uh, out of the public eye, has to come forward into the public eye so that now she has everyone's attention, and even ours, 2,000 years later. And we hear what she has to say. She confesses all. And it's beautiful, really, because you have to notice the posture of this woman, don't you? What is she doing? Verse 47, she's coming trembling with fear to Jesus and she falls at his feet, just like Jairus actually had done before her. And now this woman is exactly the same position. And just like death is a level playing field for everybody, no matter who you are, death levels us all. It's the great equaliser. So it is with Jesus. Everyone who comes to Jesus is put on the same level. All are equal before him. Whether you're rich or poor, great or small, wise or fool, man or woman, great or low, we're all in the same position before Jesus. And the woman, we're told, is trembling with fear before Jesus. But notice, because she has come to him, what does Jesus do? He immediately reassures her and encourages her in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So despite her timidity, what she has was faith, we're told. She believed that Jesus could heal her and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Her sickness had robbed her of her relationships, her dignity, her life, uh, even her identity before the people of God. But notice what Jesus calls her in verse 48. He calls her daughter. And as far as I know, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls someone daughter. And he says it to her to let her know, I think, that she is a child of God, that she's been fully accepted, that once you were excluded, but now you are fully welcome. And better still, not just as a subject, but as a daughter in the family of God. In other words, Jesus doesn't just give her her life back, he gives her eternal life as well. As you've seen the power of Jesus over sickness, that robs life. Next we see the power of Jesus over death because the woman in the story really isn't an interruption it's tempting to see it as an interruption to the story but it's actually an important part of the story for Jairus uh, verse uh, 49 um, in uh, in uh, there it says while um, they were still speaking um, someone from the ruler's house came and said your daughter is dead don't bother the teacher um, anymore At the same moment, Jairus, heals, uh, Jairus sees Jesus heal this sick woman. He's informed that his daughter has died. Was Jesus too late? Was this interruption, this delay that the woman gave Jesus, was that the blow? man from the ruler's house doesn't think there is any more hope. So don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother. And so Jesus addresses the situation straight away. He says, don't fear. 
only believe and she'll be well. Very same words he just spoke to the woman. He just finished commending the woman, remember, for her faith uh, and spoke about how her faith made her well. And here he calls on Jairus to keep the faith. And the healing of the woman wasn't an unfortunate delay, but I think a God-given encouragement for Jairus to believe that Jesus could do something. And despite the laughter of his friends and family as he enters into the house, he remains committed to Jesus. It would have been very tempting to, uh, to desert Jesus at that point. Friends, let me warn you, this is obviously not an uncommon response by the crowds to Jesus and those associated with Jesus. They sometimes, um, uh, we who uh, follow Jesus sometimes have to face the laughter and the ridicule of those around us who don't believe. I mean, you can understand the crowd, can't you? In our experience, death is final. But Jairus keeps trusting and hoping that Jesus is able to save the girl even from death. And Jesus speaks to the, to the girl. In the original, very clear, it's only two words. Child, arise, in verse 54. And the girl gets up. And it's amazing. Because that's out of our experience, isn't it? And I'm sure um, it was out of their experience as well. Jesus has power over death. And in fact, Jesus is pointing us all to something really important, I think, when he says in verse 52 uh, that the child is only uh, sleeping. She's only asleep. Uh, Because in Daniel 12, uh, the Bible talks about all the dead as though they are asleep because one day God will raise all back from the dead to life again. Then there will be the judgment day. Some will go to eternal life and others to eternal damnation, which is to hell. And this incident is reminding us that there is something far greater taking place here. Jesus is not just offering us salvation from physical death, but more importantly, from the spiritual death, from judgment to come. He is offering us eternal life into the resurrection, into the next world. And really, that is the point of these two episodes. In verse 48 and uh, verse 50, it's an unfortunate translation problem that we've got. We've got no better way of translating it in English because the original uh, makes it very clear that the word that for healing is actually the word for save. Verse 48, daughter, your faith has saved you. Uh, verse 50, don't fear, just, uh, just have faith and she will be saved. Jesus deliberately uses that word because he has a greater agenda that these two miracles are pointing to. He wants us to see that he in fact has the power to save us from death, from hell, forever into an eternal uh, new world where we will live forever with him. That he is the doctor for our soul to give it health and life and vitality forever. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus tells us healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead points us to the end of the story when Jesus himself is going to be raised back from the dead as well. Jesus came to defeat 
uh, sin and death. He came for us to save us. In his death, he took our sins and that's how he brings that forgiveness that we desperately need. Uh, he was asleep, we're told, in the tomb for three days and then he rose again. I mean, he was physically dead, don't get me wrong, but we know that death could not hold him down and keep him down. He rose again. He laughed in the face of death, not the other way around. And in his resurrection, he powerfully defeated death, not only for him, but for all those who believe in him and will be saved by him. Let me just give you some quick conclusions about uh, these two stories. Firstly, we actually see the failure of religion. I don't know if you noticed um, uh, uh, the fact that Jairus was a synagogue ruler in this whole thing. Very elite man among the Jews, very religious man, that he led the synagogue um, uh, of that local area. Um, so by religion, I mean all of the efforts that we do to seek to get right with God. Um, uh, Jairus was a firmly committed to the law kind of man, but the law failed him in this. It failed to provide him with any salvation uh, for, um, from his predicament. Uh, and uh, for the woman, in fact, uh, it failed her as well because the law had awful implications for her. It excluded her, like I said, from the temple, from the people of God. Um, and I dare say that is what the law of God does for all of us because it tells us that we are sinners and therefore under the judgment of God. None of us are good enough for God. That's why we needed Jesus. That's why Jesus had to come in the first place. Um, all of our efforts aren't good enough before God. None of them are able to save us at the judgment day before God. And so even for Jairus, the synagogue ruler, a big man in the face of religion, in the face of his dying girl, he was powerless to help her. It's, the funny thing is, as you read through the story, it's the religious folk, particularly synagogue rulers and uh, Pharisees and all those who are religious who are giving Jesus a hard time, complaining about Jesus and, um, and seeking to kill him, in fact. And yet here is this one religious leader who comes to Jesus. And it would have been a good time to, to finally rub it in his face. But what does Jesus do? He immediately goes with him. You, you come to Jesus, you humble yourself. It doesn't matter what you've done in the face of Jesus. No matter how, how much you've dissed him in the past, he will accept you. He will welcome you and he'll have you and he'll answer your greatest need. Some of us take comfort in religion. Clearly this Jairus would have done. But it provided him no comfort when he really needed it. It doesn't save. Secondly, we see the failure of medicine. The doctors couldn't help either of them either. I know that medicine uh, has come a long way in the days since Jesus. Uh, I've personally met some doctors who've done some amazing things, even for me, and I've enjoyed it um, when they've done it for me, uh, but I know that they have their limitations. They haven't been able to come up with a cure for my son's autism. They weren't able to cure my dad's cancer, nor my sister's cancer for that matter. And I know my sister spent tens of thousands of dollars towards the end of her life on any cure that would come that would be able to make her better and see her days out with her young children. But nothing. 
Nothing. But with a touch of his garment and with a simple word, Jesus is able to save from death. Not even the best doctors can do anything about that. All they can do is postpone death for a little bit longer for you. They may save you from one thing only for you to die of another thing. It takes a different power altogether to save us from death, to raise the death. And Jesus has that power. And this is the point that I hope you can take away. Death hits all of us and so every single one of us stands to benefit from Jesus because the wonderful news of the Bible is that Jesus uses his infinite power for our good to save us from death, from the coming judgment. He is promising a new creation where there will be no more pain or suffering or death or evil or forevermore. Not because we deserve it, but because he is good. He just wants to give it to us. And if it wasn't for the, uh, their greatest needs, I hope you can see that these people in the story, they're not likely to have come before Jesus. But because they desperately needed a solution, because they were hopeless, that's why they came to Jesus. So whether you realise it or not, our greatest need is to be saved from death. It's to be saved from our sins, even more so because there's a judgement beyond death. And only Jesus has that power to save us. The fact of death in our world ought to remind us that we need saving. That's why it's better to go to a house of funerals than to a party. Uh, we, we need to be reminded that we need saving from death, that we need a saviour, that we need Jesus. And time and again in the, in the Bible, the people who benefit from Jesus aren't the religious or those who are well regarded by others or those who have it all together. But those who benefit from Jesus are the ones who are needy and who humble themselves before Jesus because they believe that Jesus has the power to do something about it and the goodness and willingness to do something about it as well. In the face of death, friends, we all need Jesus. And when we come to, to him, we will find him ready and willing to receive us. So I urge you always, turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so grateful to you that we have your promise that you will be willing to receive us if, our hum if we humble ourselves before you. And no matter what we have done, no matter how we have even treated your son in the past, you will forgive us. Thank you that Jesus came so that we might have life. Thank you that in the face of death, Jesus is able to conquer it. Thank you that following death at the judgment, Jesus is able to cover our sins. Please help us all to turn to Jesus, to cling on to him and to never depart from him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.